Hello and welcome to another Counterfire podcast. Uh, this week uh, I am talking to Dominic Alexander, historian and author of a new book, The Limits of Keynesianism, um, and of course a Counterfire member. Uh, the new book was described by Caroline Alves, a research fellow from the University of Cambridge, as a timely analysis of Keynes's ideas against the backdrop of Marx's critique of capitalism, carefully arguing that financial instability and inequality quality cannot be disassociated from value and exploitation brilliant reading that's a great uh, review dominic thanks for joining us how are you i'm fine thank you great well for those of us who don't know much about Keynes, um well firstly you can tell us how to pronounce it do we say Keynes or Keynes? i always say Keynes. i, I usually say Keynes, but okay uh, I think... well let's say Keynes from now on <laughs> but that's a big question sorted out for some of us uh, thank you um all right well give us a brief introduction then of who he was when he was writing the fundamentals of his ideas would be great okay well um Keynes first comes to prominence publicly uh just after the first world war um with uh an essay on the economic consequences of the peace i mean he had been a civil servant um involved in the treasury so he had hands-on economic experience so um he kind of distinguished himself from that moment onwards by being a somewhat heterodox thinker about economics but initially his his ideas don't really break with the absolutely mainstream economic thoughts but he he became increasingly well known in the course of the 20s but it's really in the 1930s during the great depression that he makes his major contributions uh to economics and provides therefore finally a, a kind of a critique of neoclassical economics um, now, the thing about neoclassical economics, this is mainstream, orthodox, bourgeois economics, if you like. Its, right. its yep. purpose is always to justify capitalism. Its main tenant has always been that capitalism always tends towards equilibrium, towards stability, uh, unless you interfere with it, of course. Then that then problems begin. But as long as, uh, as, as no one, for example, the state, is interfering with capitalism, then it will always right itself. Now, this, you would think, would have already been disproved by the history of the 19th century with all its great financial and productive crises, all, all through the, the whole history of um, industrial capitalism in, in Britain and elsewhere. But classical economics, and despite Marx, uh, of course, had kept coming back and, and sort of saying, no, capitalism will always tend towards equilibrium. So this was still the line um, during the Great Depression of the 1930s. Uh, and the response, for example, of uh, the American President Herbert Hoover was uh, to, you know, that it was important that the state wouldn't interfere in the markets. You just had to let things take their course. And of course, the Depression simply be, uh, kept getting worse and worse. Um, so uh, Keynes was finally able to think a little bit outside the bourgeois orthodox box, if you like, mm. um, and come up with uh, an understanding and an explanation, essentially within the terms of established economics rather than within Marx's terms. But he understood that, in fact, capitalism doesn't tend towards equilibrium, mm -hmm. but can, mm. but can and will, in a natural way. Uh, go into crisis. 
Okay. And that's coming out of the lived experience of of the Wall Street crash and seeing, you know, what the biggest, probably up to that point, crisis of capitalism. So that, I suppose there was an audience for him as well in, in that moment. Yes, absolutely. There was a, a clearly a desperate need for for solutions. The solutions actually predate Keynes's actual economics. And that's something important to realise that the kind of state intervention to uh, to write the economy actually started happening before Keynes defined it in theory. So, uh, but what uh, Keynes was doing was providing a, a sort of theory for the pragmatic steps that people had been taking. Um, and his theory, therefore, sort of defines this response to, uh, yes, what was uh, at that point probably the the greatest um, crisis of capitalism, although only just because there had been another great crisis of capitalism actually in the late 19th century, which was originally called the Great Depression, mm -hmm. is okay. now called the Long Depression because it lasted much longer than that of the 1930s, okay. uh, but was probably slightly less deep. The th key thing is, in a way, that each um, major crisis of capitalism forces the authorities to take different kinds of steps to break with uh, what had gone before and introduce new ideas. So the long uh, depression of the late 19th century forced states to step in and uh, abandon free trade uh, mm -hmm. ideology, which had been dominant up to that point, uh, and introduce protectionism. Uh, as a means of uh, of protecting home markets against global competition and so forth. So that was w response to one crisis. Uh, the Great Depression elicited another response, which was uh, state intervention to stimulate the economy. Uh, and this is essentially what Keynes theorized. Uh, and he said, well, what can happen to capitalism is, in fact, it doesn't write itself um, but it can sink into what he called a sub-full employment equilibrium, which is to say okay. <laughs> okay, um, it can get to a state where there's not enough demand in the economy to encourage investment and therefore employment, uh, and it can get stuck in, in a state where it's not using the full capacity of the economy and therefore... Mm larger numbers of people are unemployed. Um, there's little stimulus to encourage capitalists to invest, to improve that situation. And what capital does is fall into what he calls a liquidity trap, that it seems better to hold capital as money uh, and hoard it rather than invest it in something that may not pay you back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Keynes said, well, the only way out of this is for something outside the system to step in mm -hmm. and provide avenues for investment or to make investment uh, look uh, uh, more likely to generate profits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So while there is much to be critical about Keynes in his approach, and particularly in the way that he always comes from the approach of capital mm. itself, mm. but this key insight that that the state needs to step in to stimulate demand is really important because it provides a justification in mainstream economic terms for an interventionist policy in which you can introduce policies that will be of benefit to working people, that mm. will actually support the standard of living, the lives of the working class, to generate stimulus that was to the benefit of society rather than capital. Mm. Mm. So there's uh, there's always that aspect to Keynes, as well as the other side, which is that his starting point are, is always the interests of capital. He, yeah, he, he's not a revolutionary, uh, n neither is he 
a Marxist. And I guess what's interesting is that his ideas feel or may look slightly radical, although we'll unpick all of that in a moment because, of course, they're not. But we're in the middle of the last 30, 40 years of rampant neoliberalism where the mainstream ideology is is far to the right of that, uh, economically speaking. So his these ideas are, are ones, rather than seeming of yesteryear, are becoming very important again, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. And really, neoliberalism is a kind of technocratic reinvention of free trade ideology of classical economics before the long depression of the late 19th century. So Keynes remains very relevant in that sense. Um, But of course, the other thing about neoliberalism is it doesn't really reject Keynesianism altogether because it does involve a great deal of state intervention to shape markets and to Mm. protect markets and so forth. And right through uh, Keynesianism itself, there is a kind of right-wing version of Keynesianism. So uh, some of the first neoliberals, like, say, Ronald Reagan, one Keynesian economist, uh, J.K. Galbraith, uh, called Ronald Reagan, in fact, a Keynesian. Uh, He's very much a right-wing Keynesian. It's state uh, stimulus via particularly military spending uh, to uh, investment in in certain sectors of the capitalist economy. But that is, in in a sense, a kind of Keynesianism. And this comes back to the point that, that Keynesianism always starts with what our capital interest and what will encourage capitalism to invest. So it's not merely a kind of marginal uh, complaint of revolutionaries that that Keynes isn't a Marxist, Mm -hmm. because it gets to the heart of what remains the problems of Keynesianism, that capitalist profitability is its central um, concern, and not, for example, social justice, social utility, Mm -hmm. uh, or any of those concerns. Mm -hmm. So we get Uh, We have uh, had various kinds of right-wing Keynesian responses to our most recent great crisis of capitalism beginning in 2008, because of the whole kind of stimulus package that was introduced to save the banks. That is, in a sense, a form of uh, of Keynesianism. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. state intervention uh, to protect the economy. And the, one of the, the major interventions that we've had is what's called quantitative easing, yeah. whereby essentially uh, the government buys its own debts. And really the intent in that is to, on the one hand, it's it's to encourage the banks to invest by essentially handing over money to mm-hmm. them. But it's rather than a more left-wing version of Keynesianism would intervene directly into the economy with state spending to build things of social use, hospitals and schools, for example. But quantitative easing goes in the other direction and is making sure it's providing a sort of avenue mm. for uh, profitability. It, it, it's it's another way of propping up capital. I was going to ask, where do we situate him then on this kind of... Of course, he's not on the revolutionary left and he's not of the extreme uh, neoliberal economics, which is, uh, again, sadly fashionable. Or is it that Keynes is someone who can just be adapted... For, but for lots of people's kind of different agendas, I, I think that's a that's that's a good point. I mean, Keynes has always been ad, uh, adapted in various different ways. I mean, where does he sit on the continuum? Rather, one should say that Keynes is deeply contradictory. At one point in the 1920s, he said very firmly that in any class conflict, he was on the side of the capitalists and the bourgeoisie. But then, under the impact of the Great Depression, he clearly did move leftwards. The problem is that he could mean something for the left but he could be very determined to be the protector of capitalism. For example, uh, for him, it doesn't matter if uh, investment in state stimulus is socially useful, so long as it 
stimulates capital. And one famous example he said is that it would obviously be more socially desirable to introduce socially useful investment. But if you're not going to do that, then what would be still good is to, for example, the government to pay for banknotes to be sealed in jars, buried in disused mines, those mines filled up, and then for the government to encourage investors to dig out those mines to get the money, because this would stimulate employment and so forth, and that would get the economy moving again. Uh, So essentially he thought that these things were neutral so long as capital uh, regained confidence. Okay. And that is a really central point to Keynes and therefore most of his followers is the confidence of capital. So, I mean, putting money in working people's pockets in a Keynesian context isn't about um, lifting them out of drudgery and misery. It's it's not a kind of an ethical thing. It's because they then have a spending power. Absolutely, yes. Uh, And in fact, uh, in some other examples, um, Keynes was actually more concerned about... Uh, reducing wages and in one set of advice he he gives uh, for capitalism is that you should never make a full frontal assault on workers wages because they will resist uh, and that will actually encourage resistance a much better way forward is to reduce wages through inflation because that's much harder to resist and that will have the desired result of uh, profitability will be restored because the share of wages will be lowered so and, and that comes back to quantitative easing. The, mm. One of the effects mm. of quantitative easing is inflation, and wages have not kept up with that. Mm. Mm. Um, so again, this is a mechanism for restoring profitability and the confidence uh, of capital. Now, one thing that's important here is that Keynes sees this as the only way out, because for him, the, the only cause of capitalist crisis is the confidence of capital itself. He tends towards a purely psychological explanation of of crisis um, because it is about the cycle of confidence. In an upturn, capitalists become confident and they overinvest. They they, they get overenthusiastic about Mm. the possibility of profit. And so they sort of overshoot and you get a, 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 a crisis as the result. But then as things go down, capital withdraws more and more and overshoots in the opposite way. So capital becomes too reluctant to invest. So it's always about getting the confidence of the capitalist correct. I think that's that's a great start for general catching up for those of us who know less. So why does he remain important for us on the left, despite the fact that he's obviously in some context, as you've already outlined for us, you know, opposed to what we would kind of think of as basic work and people's rights and some decent wages and so on. And of course, he wants the capitalist class to feel confident. Why then for us on the the left and even the Marxist left, are his ideas so important? Well, they do offer a set of practical measures that you can advocate that if correctly formulated, can be of use to ordinary people and to society in general, as opposed to merely capitalist profits. So uh, this goes back to the sense that Keynes is contradictory. There is something there that is important for a kind of more preferable management of the of the capitalist system for social justice, for a more equal society. Uh, and it's worth remembering that, for example, um, 
it is it was actually in Sweden during the 1930s that the first kind of state interventionist policies that we could call Keynesian or maybe even social democratic were brought in mm-hmm. um, uh, and this is before Keynes was theorizing this so really um, those measures were brought in because of the balance of class forces in that society at that particular time the labor movement was strong enough to push for things that would be of benefit uh, to working people and would support a better standard of, of living and then that just happened to have the right kind of impact on stimulating the economy and so forth. So there's a whole series of things that you can do with Keynesianism, but you have to have a certain awareness of what its limitations are, so you can't be wholly caught up within Keynesian theory itself. And you also have to have an understanding of what the limits of those Keynesian measures are going to be. And that you can't have with just Keynes. There we have to go back to Marx Mm -hmm. to understand where the problems start kicking in Mm. with Keynesian policy. Mm -hmm. Let's let's get into that then, because the book's called The Limits of Keynesianism. What are those limits? What is the Marxist rejection, if you like, of his politics? Well, actually, I think we, we need to start, in a sense, with the theory. I mean, Keynesian economists do, of course, get into a lot of very technical number crunching. There's a there's a lot of important theory in Keynes about uh, interest-bearing money and circuits of capital and so forth. But leaving that aside, there is an absence in Keynes, which is what happens in production itself. Keynes is essentially interested in the in the sphere of circulation in the market where you know goods are sold is there the money to buy those goods what profit is being made on those goods and so forth so it's the circulation as opposed to the production process and this was is what enables him to become psychological is to find the the, the fundamentals in merely confidence uh, and I mean one of his great followers a, an economist called Hyman Minsky uh, takes this to the extreme. I mean, he, he, you can actually, of course, create quite mathematical models of the cycling of confidence. So this can be all highly technical and impressive looking. But it does come down to this idea that the cycles are about confidence growing into overconfidence. So the seeds of the next crisis in, is in the mindset of the earlier one. In all of this, Keynes just absolutely ignored Marx. And Marx, while he has an, uh, an awful lot to say about the circulation process and so on, he delves much more deeply than Keynes does into the way that capitalism works. Marx doesn't see capitalist confidence as, as the starting point. He sees capital as having a kind of life cycle. So rather than just being sort of money that can be spent, um, capital is a kind of social power which circulates through society. Many people understand from school biology the idea of the carbon cycle, mm, for mm, example, mm, of, of, mm. Uh, of how the you know uh, how nature works through through the various cycles. Well, capital has a kind of life cycle of it itself through the production and through the circulation process and, and back again. But you have to look at that in a historical way to understand how capitalism develops and why uh, the great crises occur. Now, this is obviously a very large subject, so I'm just going to try and Mm -hmm. pick out some Mm -hmm. key aspects to it. Okay, so the big difference between Keynes and Marx lies in the labor theory of value, which Keynes absolutely rejected. Uh, He rejected the very concept of value. Value is not the same as price. It's something that lies behind price, is more qualitative in nature in a way, Uh, although clearly 
it becomes something exchangeable and therefore quantifiable. But if we just accept for the moment that there is this concept of value. Now, profitability relates to how much value is being produced, and that value comes from labor. Now, it is important for the capitalist to be able to extract what is called surplus value from labor. Ultimately, that means that, that workers are paid less than the value that they produce. This surplus value, however, has to be realized by the products being sold um, in the market, so there has to be demand for them. But the trick is that surplus value actually declines over time as capitalism develops because each capitalist com competes with the other to uh, attempt to undercut them so sell more goods and so forth uh, but the way that they do this is introducing machinery now the more machinery you have in your factory mm -hmm. the less labor you need mm -hmm. but the value is only coming out of labor or the surplus value only comes out of the living labor that is introduced mm -hmm. the machinery represents dead labor which is you know, labor that's already been crystallized uh, is, is not adding new or surplus value. So the more technologically advanced uh, your productive process is, the smaller the proportion uh, of surplus value to capital investment you're going to get. I think I'm with you. As the technology develops, the technology becomes more expensive, so you're spending more on staying ahead of your competitors, and therefore you're still making profit, but the, mar the profit margin is narrower and narrower as that kind of race careers along. Does that work? Yes, I mean, that, that is very much part of it. But you're investing more and more capital, but you're employing proportionally fewer and fewer workers. But, you know, th that capital that you invest, that's not producing the extra value. It's it's the workers that come in that actually make the machinery run. And, mm -hmm. the, the, you know, you can make them work greater hours uh, than it needs for them to keep on living. Yeah. Right? So that's the difference. Um, but you have to put in larger and larger amounts of capital to generate uh, that exploitative surplus uh, out of a smaller and smaller number of workers. Now, this has all sorts of complex effects because, in fact, the capitalists who invest more, uh, more capital tend to get more of the total social surplus that's being created, whereas uh, uh, because of competition. Uh, so the, 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 Marx referred to this as a kind of socialism for capitalists, that, that, uh, that uh, you know, according to their contribution, they get a higher reward. So it has a contradictory effect. And Marx p pointed out all sorts of these uh, contradictions lying beneath the surface uh, of how capitalism works. Mm -hmm. And so there is, uh, the, the, the more that capitalism is successful, the more likely it is to go into a profitability crisis. And uh, certain Marxists have shown, looking historically, that the uh, that profitability crises have always been involved in the Great Crisis, from the Long Depression of the 19th mm -hmm. century, the Great Depression in the 1930s, the crisis of stagflation in the 1970s, and our current crisis. So Marxism has this concept of the declining rate of profit. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is this idea that because of capital's historical development, uh, you will get these periodic great crises. Mm -hmm. Now, these are not uh, kind of linear mechanical phenomenon. They're, they're quite contradictory because capitalism develops new industries mm. which have different 
different kinds of patterns, different forms of investment. They have different effects. So, you know, the investment in in the spinning jenny that created all the cotton mills of the early 19th century, that's a, a very different kind of technology and very different effects than the introduction of Fordist production of cars in mm-hmm. the 1920s, uh, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's not a very predictable way in which uh, the declining rate of profit develops. And each crisis is therefore quite different from the last one. It can also be contradictory because, you know, the introduction of machinery can restore profitability. So if you Uh, introduce machinery into agriculture and make food cheaper, that will increase profitability in other parts of the economy because uh, workers uh, can reproduce their labor with less money. Wages can can relatively go down, profits can go up, and people might even be more prosperous because if if mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, they, if they're spending less money on food, they might uh, their wages might go further. Introducing new technology has these kind of contradictory waves of effect. Mm-hmm. Um, one moment you might be it might be causing the economy to be become more prosperous, but then as a technology spreads out throughout the economy. Then it, it becomes the norm, you know, the status quo. Then, yeah. Then, then yeah. it provoke a, a crisis. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. This is why the financial bubbles, for example, are not just psychological of events. Mm-hmm. The way that Hyman Minsky, mm-hmm. Keynes's uh, follower, uh, saw them, and the two thousand and eight event has sometimes been called a Minsky moment because it was felt that it was psychological in nature in the way that Minsky had oh, had proposed and predicted. That. But Marxists see this, no, it's it's got a, a deeper causation in the increasing difficulty capitalism has in making profits in the whole world economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, wages have been stagnating for a long time. There's less demand in the economy. That It's saturated with certain kinds of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just less profitability uh, in the system overall. But the important thing, the important difference between Marx uh, and Keynes here is is the way that Keynes saw things in a quite linear and rather mechanical way, uh, that gradually uh, capital would become more and more abundant and then would be able to, to, to harness less profit because it, it's in abundance. And that, that's a kind of linear process. Whereas Marx's understanding of crisis is much more historical in nature, rather more unpredictable. A key difference, therefore, between Keynes and Marx um, is their approach um, to the history uh, of capitalism. In a sense, Keynes is quite unhistorical in that he sees uh, supply and demand uh, as an eternal an unchanging process. Capital doesn't change in form, it merely becomes uh, uh, more profitable, less profitable, more abundant or maybe less abundant. These are unchanging elements which uh, simply cycle around over time in a straight kind of linear line. In Marx there's much more of a cycle, it's much more historical, so it it depends on all sorts of different movements. Mm -hmm. So for example, one way, there's different ways of getting out of a crisis. One way of getting out of a crisis was for example imperialism, because if a national capital can corral whole markets, whole areas of the globe for its own profitability and exclude other capitals, then it's going to restore its profitability. Mm-hmm. So capitalist crisis can uh, can be resolved uh, not within purely economic terms, but in um, political and strategic terms as well, which is 
why there always needs to be this political dimension, mm. which Keynes just doesn't have. Keynes separates that off. He wants to remain purely within the economic sphere. But he makes everything too simple. He makes them unchanging relations rather than historical ones. You've got a Marxist economism, which factors in political and social factors, historical factors, which of course seems to most of our listeners and certainly to me the obvious thing to do. I'm just very kind of intrigued by this whole thing you were covering earlier about how it's all about confidence. And, and it seems like with his ideas around supply and demand and profitability, there's lots of kind of very abstract ideas. What that seems to be exposing to me is you've got Marxism, which is uh, a materialist philosophy, being determines consciousness. And Keynes, exact opposite. Keynes saw himself as very much a materialist uh, and very much sort of a practical materialist. He did, that's interesting. Okay. Um, but he's a very different kind of materialist than Marx. He's a reductive materialist in the sense he sees things as fixed empirical units. If you think of maybe Newtonian physics, mm. it's all nice hard surfaces. The universe is all these little uh, hard balls bouncing into each other. There's there's no relativism there, you know. Um, uh, there's no wave theory. It's it's just little units which are all nice and discrete. That's common sense materialism, and it goes back to sort of seeing you know things like supply and demand as unchanging fixed kinds of laws relations. of nature. I mean, laws of nature, right, but very yeah. mechanical, sure. fixed laws of nature, uh, whereas. Uh, Marx is a, a, a dialectical uh, materialist who, for whom things are not merely fixed. Things are relations, not fixed objects. Mm -hmm. So in the interaction between things, things change each other in, in rather qualitative ways. Now, I think in a way, Marx was looking forward into kind of 20th century advances in, in, uh, in, in scientific theory. If you, if you think quantum theory, in which things are not fixed atoms in space, but are, are waves mm -mm. and so on. So actually, Marx understood uh, the rather more complex way that reality works better than the common sense materialism uh, of Keynes and his bourgeois predecessors. I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the theory of relativity, uh, n nothing makes sense in without understanding how it relates to another thing. I mean, and, and of course, that's that's the core of Marx on every level, really, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It seems to me that the, you know, the key difference, really, in Marxist and Keynesian economics is crisis. And we've talked a lot about it, but, I mean, sum it up for us, perhaps. What, what are the kind of, what are the final things to say about um, crisis? For Keynes, one crisis is the same as the other, and you can respond to it in the same way with the same techniques. Um, for Marx, crises is a historically developing problem. So every crisis is different from the last um, and cannot necessarily be fixed in the same way. This makes the solution to crisis always a political one. Uh, and it's important to remember that, that with Marxist economics, you need to move forward to the politics. Because if you remain stuck merely on the economic level with uh, the declining rate of profit, for example, then Marxism can become merely uh, a council of doom. You can't do anything until capitalism fixes, restores its own profitability. Um, so it, it can be a way of, uh, of saying that um, there's nothing to be done. Capitalism will just slash wages and reduce the standard of living until it restores itself to profitability. Um, we just have to convince everybody that we should be socialists instead. But politics, history, people don't work like that.
that. What you need to be able to do is offer people real solutions in the here and now to the crisis of capitalism. And, of course, that's what uh, Marx um, would have meant. He would have wanted the um, labor movement to come up with uh, its own solutions, which he hoped would move uh, society beyond capitalism. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the key thing, isn't it? That we're not the um, a Marxist response to a crisis is about transcending capitalism and moving beyond it. Yeah. I think that's so. Let's let's bring this then to 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 round everything up into the here and now. As I started by saying, you know, unfortunately, we find ourselves in a, in a moment where pre-Keynesian economics is prevalent. How do we transcend this moment? We're in a moment of uh, rampant neoliberalism, austerity, crisis. We're on the cusp of, we hope, a more progressive government if we succeed in forwarding the Jeremy Corbyn project as far down the road as we can. This, it's an incredibly exciting time. What does Keynes give us specifically in this moment? And, and I guess in a sense, I'm, I'm thinking we need to um move towards Keynes and then move through Keynes in a sense don't we it seems to me that's a good way of putting it um i mean i think when we go back to the notion that Keynes is contradictory and capitalism to get out of its slump will have to find a way of of, of stimulating itself of restoring profitability but you will have one form of keynesianism or another we've had a lot of quantitative easing that's a right-wing keynesian uh, keynesianism for capital mm. what we need to push for are the left versions of keynesianism which is state intervention into the economy but what we want is a state intervention uh, with a strong eye towards uh, the standard of living of ordinary people, of wages uh, for the working class, of socially useful investment. So the only way to get this is through political action, through a mass movement, social action. And this is, again, one, one of the great absences in Keynes and Keynesian economic theory is an understanding of class and an understanding of the way that capital acts as social power. We have to understand that, which we can get from Marx, uh, and organize to uh, put pressure on whatever government you have to intervene on behalf of people rather than capital. So this should lead to a whole series of really fairly obvious um, reformist interventions. So to spend money on things like the National Health Service. Uh, those kinds of institutions are keen to building up a society in which social institutions are key uh, and central uh, rather than um, profit-making ones. There's all those social institutions that we should be supporting and, and extending. So, uh, you know, the the idea of a national education system on the same lines of the NHS is a great idea. And that should be we should be pulling education out of the arena of profitability rather than let it sink ever more desperately into it mm -hmm. um, we need to take housing outside of the sphere of capital where it's become uh, a playground for speculative investment precisely because uh, of low profitability capital flows into other areas like housing so we need to take housing out of that there needs to be a national housing service for example mm -hmm. a key uh, element to any serious left-wing Keynesian approach would be therefore the nationalization of finance Right, so the banks should be taken into public ownership and uh, away mm. from, uh, from from capital. Um, I could go on. There's, uh, we could uh, have all sorts of ideas about what should happen, and and clearly a very pressing one now would be investment in a green energy infrastructure, and that should be led by uh, government, and it should be uh, planned cooperatively uh, and democratically.
Mm. Right. So mm. uh, these are, are all the things that are wish list, if you like. Mm. Um, it's a good wish list. It all depends on the balance of power in society, whether we can get them or not. Mm. So mm-hmm. whatever you're demanding, you need to turn your eyes to building uh, the movements that can force these onto uh, these issues onto the agenda. Mm. Um, mm. It's not enough to merely uh, elect a government which uh, says it, it's going to follow various Keynesian policies. You need social power to keep it there and to force it ever further. At some moment, there will be a, a counterattack by capital, and it will come sooner or later, depending on the balance of class forces. So capital at some times may allow the creation of the NHS after the Second World War, for example, because it accepted that there was a certain amount of uh, uh, social necessity to it, that it couldn't stand against everything, and maybe it was useful for its own purposes to, to some extent. So there was a great reformist surge after 1945 that was very important. Um, but at a certain point, capital reasserted itself and made the the the, the Attlee government um, backtrack, uh, look after capital a bit more. So they mm. almost immediately started introducing charges in various parts of the NHS, committed themselves to the Korean War in service of the strategic goals of capital. Mm. for example. So any government will come under massive pressure for capital to go back to its own capital interests. And we need the social movements to prevent that from happening and to push forward beyond that. I mean, yeah, I think what I'm taking from this is that in the short to medium term, and certainly after 40 years of neoliberalism, it will feel absolutely like a step forward, that a kind of left Keynesianism will be very, very welcome indeed. But I guess what you're saying is that if we don't go further from that, we leave ourselves vulnerable always to capital to respond, to reassert itself, to say, you've come this far but no further, and even as we've seen with the NHS and a whole range of other things, uh, rolling the clock backwards. It makes me think, again, wanting to kind of bring it back to the moment we're in. In your mind, looking at the Labour manifesto in 2017, looking at the kind of noises that uh, McDonnell and Corbyn and others are making, how far is is it a Keynesian economics? How far does it push it to the left? And how can we push that ourselves even further? And it is uh, Keynesian in a broad sense. The various suggestions like a national investment bank are are good and useful ones. So, So there are good elements to it. There are elements that seem maybe a bit cautious. The problem is it, it all depends on what uh, what we, in a, in a sense, in the movements can push for. All right? We will get a more radical Corbyn government if we can build a movement that will push that onto the agenda further. We will get a timid government if we uh, are not there forcing the issue forward and demanding more radical policies. So at any one moment, there are sort of useful suggestions. And and, and certainly, uh, you know, on the one hand, you could sort of say, well, uh, they look very cautious and timid Keynesian policies from the point of view of, of 1950 or 1970. On the other hand, what really matters is... Uh, is 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 not a, a position in a kind of uh, linear uh, sense, but the direction of travel. So there is an important way in which Corbynism and McDonald's suggestions have broken with st- the standard uh, neoliberal model. I mean, we wish it would go further, but this is a, a start. 
and we need to encourage that to develop and become more confident and more ambitious. I think that's a fantastic place to wrap and actually many of the conversations on this podcast seem to end with building the social movements but of course it's always essential. Dominic, thank you so much. The book sounds fascinating. I'm going to be reading it myself very soon uh, and I hope other people will do so. You can find the book and order it online on the Counterfire website www.counterfire.org Dominic, thank you very much for coming in.